You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worland. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up? Are you sure you don't mean Jan Watkins? Because you got a little thing with mispronouncing names, don't you, Kyle? I do. I do. <laughs> um, yes. It, I was kindly I reminded. I them over and over again. It's J-T. <laughs> it's easy. No, it it's just two letters. Name. It's J-T. <laughs> it was not your name. It was, la- uh, I'm now co-hosting a podcast with another incredible, gifted communicator, Confronting Christianity podcast. If you haven't checked it out, you can get it wherever you're getting your podcast at. And in our first episode of Knowing Faith this season, I referred to her as Rebecca McLaughlin. But in the first episode of Confronting Christianity that released the exact same week, she confronted, she not confronted me, but she <laughs> confronting clarified Kyle for Worley. me. She, she confronted Kyle Worley. Uh, that'll be our uh, that'll be our Patreon exclusive show <laughs> where she just tells me how wrong I am regularly. How do I but get on she, that episode? Well, you you've been living that life for a long for, for a long time. So, but she 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 clarified for me. She corrected me. It's not Rebecca McLaughlin. It's Rebecca McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. McLaughlin. Um, and so, thank you, Jen or Jan uh, and uh, JT. Uh, for making sure that I don't forget my many mistakes that I make on this podcast. No, but also I realized that you, I think I've been mispronouncing your name for years. Yeah, we talked about this. I don't have a dog in the fight when it comes to how people pronounce. Like when people say <laughs> Whirly or Whirly, I'm like tomato, tomato. I but never you say Whirly, it. like Whirly Ball. I say Kyle Whirly. Yeah, like yeah, Whirly Ball. I've said Whirly for as long as I've known you. You know, I've well, never- it's an O. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> so now JT is going to tell you how to pronounce your own name. Just to be clear, yeah. listeners, JT uh-huh. is now telling Kyle how to say his own name. Well, I have a feeling in this season, JT is going to be telling me how to say a lot of things correctly <laughs> and all the ways that I've said other things incorrectly. I feel like I've trained you pretty well in the doctrine of God. Uh, I mean, I'll just be reminding you of the things you had wrong in the past. Yeah. Well, there was a time in which um, I spoke as a child. Uh, Shatim, uh, is that when that time was? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I've, I've had some real, just real moments of brilliance on this show. And I, you know, I initially at one point thought, man, my daughter's going to have a chance to listen yeah. back nope. one day and hear all these things. And then I was like, and, and like, there was a moment where I was like, I'm going to be proud of that. She's going to be able to look back and be like, wow. And then as the years have gone by, I've thought, oh, okay, that's actually not a good thing. Um, <laughs> she's going to hear about Ko- koalas. Yeah, and that's my fault. Shatim that's on me. Still feel bad about the koala thing. Lots of jokes about my bald head. So that, that was also me. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, yeah. I probably need to just apologize to your daughter. Well, and as third, we've, third Corinthians. As we've said many times, it's like when Jen hits you, when JT and I have found out the hard way, you cannot hit back without repercussions. <laughs> yeah, <you> <laughs> the, the, the Jen Wilkin audience is easily motivated and catalyzed. I'll uh, never to forget take up the first defense. time. Because like we didn't know that on a podcast. Like, there's no way to know that on a podcast, but we were all at a conference. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we were just all friends being doing friends a and a podcast. And we were like doing with, this publicly. Right. And all of a sudden, I realized very quickly, you do not disagree with Jen at a women's Bible conference publicly because our tires and our car were slit when we got back to them. That's (laughs) not true. But I will say like now, you know, when I travel and speak places, I think the tide has turned. People think you're adorable. 
Like women are always like, oh my gosh, y'all changing colors and hello. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I sure will. <laughs> they think you're funny well, and, you know, so mm, I don't know. Wow. I may not well, stand up gra- so well in a fight next time. It's very gratifying. And if you're booking women's conferences, I am available. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to come in, give a real yeah. middle of the fairway talk on what it means to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Right, right. Um, and I've you know, a- it would be so great because we really need more opportunities for men to be able to mm-hmm. be on platforms. Ooh. Church, See, this though. is where you, she starts punching. Stop, Kyle. This is where you exactly. stop. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me segue. Where were us we? Into, we were going to yeah, talk about something today. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. talk about God. Uh, so today yes. we're talking this whole season, not just today. We're talking through the doctrine of God, and today we're focusing on who is God. God is one. This begins a four episode exploration on the doctrine of the Trinity, um, and uh, the, certainly when we're thinking through the doctrine of God, beginning with who God is is crucial. We're going to be spending a lot of time talking through uh, the attributes of God this season. That'll really be the bulk of the season. Um, and, and God is his attributes, which we'll actually probably get into a little bit in the course of this episode. But when we think about beginning with who God is, it is crucial for us to start with the doctrine of the Trinity, with what it means that God is triune. But before we do that, last episode, if you missed it, we talked a little bit about what is doctrine, what is the doctrine of God. So just real quickly, can one of you catch up the listener if they missed episode one, what is doctrine and what is the doctrine of God? And then from there, we'll slip into thinking through the question of what does it mean that God is one? Yeah, I'll be happy to do it quick. I mean, we said doctrine is not something that is uh, monopolized by Christianity. It's something, it's just a basic belief held by a political party or a religious group or a mom's day out group. I don't know, like just people who who kind of come together and said, we believe this. Christianity has specific doctrines based upon what we think the word of God says about what who God is, who we are, what sin is, what the world is, what God's doing in the world through his son and through the spirit, and ultimately what our hope is in the resurrection of the dead and the coming of the kingdom. And so a doctrine is a is a basic belief of Christianity. There, there are doctrines that we all hold together as Christians, like for example, Trinitarianism, doctrine of God, but there's also doctrines that we might disagree on or say are second tier or third tier issues, but all of those things nonetheless are doctrines. The doctrine of God in particular, especially the things we're going to be talking about the next few episodes, we would want to say are universal. Christians believe this. Christians believe these truths about who God is and and, and what he's doing and what he's done in the world. And so one of the things that we're going to start talking about today is this radical idea that God is one and that there aren't multiple gods, there aren't multiple deities. There's not uh, one God I worship here, another God I worship on Tuesday, another God I worship on Wednesday, or a God that I worship because of the sun, or a God that I worship because of, of mountains, or a God of the water. But rather, there's one God who is the creator of, of all things. And that's something that the Bible makes just unbelievably clear, that our, our devotion, our adoration, and affection, our worship is directed towards this one God. That's right. And Jen, you were mentioning in the last episode how the doctrine of God was kind of catalytic for you in terms of uh, deepening your devotion, your worship, and your attention to God's Word as you meditate on it and study it. So why does the doctrine of God matter? Like, why do you think it was so influential in kind of moving you further and deeper into your communion with God? 
Yeah, well, I think that it's significant that we worship a God who is knowable, and He's not only knowable, but He desires to make Himself known. And so um, when we begin to understand that that's really what the force of the Scriptures are doing is making God known so that we can have right understanding of Him and right understanding of ourselves in relation to Him as derivative beings of this this knowable God, um, then the scriptures begin to come alive. They just, all of a sudden, you're not looking for a roadmap for life, although you're going to get a roadmap for life, just not the way you thought you would. You're not looking for, you know, you're not going to magic eight ball your Bible the way that you used to, uh, asking it to solve like some immediate problem because you you have a different reference point. You have a much bigger reference point in what is true about God. What are you doing over there, JT? This is the roadmap to life. Oh. It's in, it's in the very back. <laughs> Perfect. It's, Paul's, it's Paul's missionary journey, Paul's so you're gonna journey. you're gonna need to save your <laughs> pennies. Paul's, this is Paul's um, roadmap for life. I would argue, take one of those cruises. <laughs> those look pretty great. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the doctrine of God is. Um, I mean, I, I think it's this. This might be a spicy opinion. I think it's the starting point in any study of doctrine. I think you should start with the doctrine of God and go from there. There are probably other ways to go about it, but I think it's a really good place to start. What do you think, JT? Are you smirking at me? No, I, I agree with you. This is a chicken or the egg conversation. This yeah, is actually yeah. referring yeah. back to the, the little argument we had at that conference. It's, it it's not only the, the, the <laughs> it's not, it's exactly not the starting. Was <laughs> yeah, it's like, it oh, little? Not, yeah, I felt little at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. This is the starting point uh, for all, all doctrine. I also want to, I'm not pushing on what you just said, Jen, because I agree wholeheartedly. But You maybe said it was the basis of the Jenga game, so be careful. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. So I'm agreeing wholeheartedly with you. But maybe even pushing a little further, when we think about doctrine and we think about reading the Bible, there is a chicken or the egg. We we have all have lenses that we put on right. when we come to the Bible. And so it's important that once we learn something about God from the Bible— we put that lens on, and that lens helps us interpret the Bible the next time we come to it, and then again right. the next time we come to it. Right. And that's ultimately what I think doctrine helps us do, is it gives us the right lenses for reading Scripture appropriately. Because you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Mm-hmm. Every single heresy over the course of Christian history has come from a misreading of the Bible, not a denial of the Bible. And so it's important that we realize, okay, let's have these right kind of – big capital C Orthodox kind of Christian church Catholicity lenses on as we come to God's word is all I was going to say. I think you would agree with that. So when we start with thinking through the doctrine of God, we begin today with the oneness of God, the oneness of God. So what does it mean to say that God is one? You think about um, one of the most famous passages in Israel's collective life together was Deuteronomy chapter 6. They certainly would have been familiar with this. It's referred to as the great Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you have the exhortations to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you should teach these words diligently to your children, and so on and so forth. And so when we begin with the oneness of God, we, we are beginning um, not just with the oh the uniqueness of the God of Israel, but the fact that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one God, is unified uh, in all that he does uh, and eternally subsists or exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet they share in the same 
divine substance, one substance, one essence. So the oneness of God is a crucial place to begin. What does it mean to say that God is one? Does it just mean to say that he's the singular number one? Like when we think of like a a number one? Does it mean to say that God is chief, meaning that God is preeminent or primary among a plurality of gods? Does it mean to say that God is unified, one in terms of wholeness? Does it mean to say that God is one in terms of he's the only available option uh, or the only one there is? What does it mean to say that God is one? Yeah. As we answer that question, Kyle, I'd love to step back and just give a a definition that we're going to come back to these next three or four episodes as we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, because the next three episodes after this oneness of God, as we look at the three persons, we're going to, we're basically going to explore this definition episode by episode. So let me give this definition and and hopefully you guys can kind of hang on to this, maybe write it down, jot it down on your phone, and we're going to come back to it. I think this is a a good kind of trustworthy time-tested definition of what Trinitarianism is. This is what we mean, and, and it gets to God's oneness first. It says, God eternally exists as one essence. That's what we're going to get to the oneness of God today. God eternally exists as one essence and three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, yet there is only one God. So God eternally exists as one essence, three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit each of whom is fully God, yet there is one God. So to answer your question, Kyle, and I think this is what the Bible reveals, we're going to read the Nicene Creed here in a moment, is we're talking primarily when we think about the oneness of God is is singularity. That's what we mean by monotheism, Mm -hmm. the one the, the one theos, the one God. And that's something that emerges in the storyline of the Bible. We mentioned this in our last episode in a, in a really strange context. When you have most peoples on the earth worshiping a plurality of gods, uh, kind of w- which we, we would call polytheism or more than one God or many gods. And here God is revealing himself to God's people as the one God, like you just mentioned in Exodus or Deuteronomy. But that's something that continues on into the New Testament. Jesus is worshiping his father. You, you think about Paul in Galatians 3.20 saying, he's talking about the intermediary, the, 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 the mediatorial work of Christ. But he says an intermediary does not imply more than one because God is one. So even Paul in the New Testament, he believes Jesus is God, but he still believes that God is is one. So we're talking about the singular nature, singular essence of who God is. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. 
The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up his anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of his immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. I might be jumping ahead too quickly to practical questions, but I'm curious, what do you think drives the polytheistic impulse in the human heart? Like, why are we so compelled toward it? And then added to that would be my question of why is a monotheon so much better than a polytheon? So we want gods, uh, I think we're born into this world with a desire for independence and autonomy. We want gods that are omnipotent but not sovereign because we want to wield their power for our own ends. Calvin, in more of a theological reading of the, the, the question, would say that our heart, because of the impact of sin, is, is an idol factory. It's constantly generating new false gods. And so I think we see that preponderance of false gods in the world at large, certainly in the ancient world, that those false gods took physical manifestations most of the time. There were some sort of idol that was constructed that was actually a physical thing, or there was a temple, or there was a whole rite and ritual that was built around a worshiping community around a false god. We think, as modern people, that we've advanced far beyond that, and yet our idols have merely become more deceptive. They've become more entrenched. It's not that they're absent. It's that they're not as, uh, they're usually not as physically available to us. We, we don't build them as idols uh, uh, as often as we once did, so to speak. And yet they still remain ever present. So I do think that that kind of drift towards polytheism, it, 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 uh, gratifies the sense we have uh, because of the impact of sin of wanting to be able to wield divine power for our own rule and autonomy and false gods often give you the false promise that if you worship them, they will give you the yield you so desire. And we like to have our yields, our desired yields fulfilled and false gods promise to do that. Well, it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure situation with polytheism, too, because you can pick and choose which gods you're going to show deference to. And when God says, I am God, and there is no other, he's basically saying, it's a package deal. You don't get to parse me out into pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it's, it's like the difference between a buffet line where you choose what you want and yeah. where someone serves you the meal that is good for you and you eat the whole thing. That's exactly right. That may be a terrible metaphor. I haven't read that in any of the books that have stood the test of time, so don't hold me to that. No, but I think that works. What was your second question, though? I I forgot it. Um, Why is it better to have a monotheon than a polytheon? Like, why why should we be so glad that God is one and not many? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. JT, feel free to jump in, but— Oh, I will. Well, principal reason— (laughs) You go first, though. 
the dominant ancient polytheistic narratives about the origin of the cosmos, uh, per, like all of them include gods who are warring with one another. There's a division of will because there's a, because there's a diversity of gods. There's not a unity of will. Unity of will is something crucial that we will come back to regarding the Christian God and what mm -hmm. scripture has to say about it, because it is a very vital aspect of a healthy doctrine of God. The ancient narratives tell a story about warring gods because diversity of persons, diversity of wills, that diversity of wills inevitably leads to a diversity of desires, uh, hopes, aspirations, and subsequently mm -hmm. the warring gods. The cosmos are born out of the warring gods in most polytheistic conceptions of the cosmos. But let's table that. Let's imagine that you just say all of the polytheistic conceptions were morally neutral or even potentially morally good. Let's table the idea that uh, diversity of persons, diversity of wills could lead to a diversity of opinions about how the cosmos should be arranged. Let's imagine it didn't. Why would monotheism be better than even a purer form of polytheism? And I actually think Mike Reeves does an excellent job on this in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, which I know we have endorsed so many times that now it feels like we're a Delighting in the Trinity, like branded show. We're not. The book Maybe is we're really, earning money off of every sale. <laughs> we're, we're not, although that would be great. Um, <laughs> we'd be rich. <laughs> we'd be rich because the book is great. Um, it's very good. But he, he talks about how uh, in the Christian understanding of Trinitarian monotheism, because we're not just monotheist. Christians aren't just we're not just monotheists in the way that our, our Jewish neighbors, for example, are monotheists or our Muslim neighbors are monotheists. We are a unique kind of monotheism, Trinitarian monotheism, which also happens to be the true kind of monotheism. So that's a benefit for all the Trinitarian monotheists out there. But in Trinitarian monotheism, what we find is that the creator of the world, this God who is one, is uniquely capable of creating uh, uh, creating a creation that is properly ordered and a creation that is the overflow of Trinitarian love uh, that's not fulfilling any felt need in his life. There's not some sort of missing, gaping hole that the one God is experiencing that creation will fulfill and that Trinitarian monotheism— But I thought God didn't want heaven without us, Kyle. Well— Oh, it's a, dude. That's a, that's a, it's a beautiful sentiment um, that just is not every I dotted and every T crossed. Why can't uh, that, why can't that be true though? Because it presumes to speak about a absence that the Trinitarian God experiences of which creation or our salvation is the fulfillment of that desire. And yet God, the Trinitarian God is lacking in no thing needed for self-existence or self-sufficiency or self-satisfaction. Which is another reason why there's only one God. If there was any form of plurality or diversity, not diversity in the Godhead, but a, 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 multi, a multiplicity of gods, there, there would be something absent in God himself, whether exactly. it's salvation or another deity. Exactly. That's exactly right. Can you and, talk more about that? I don't think that I want, to, I want you to say more words about that. If there is more than one God, then any one God is not fully God. So if there's if there's like a divine pool, let's just imagine. And this is how some people wrongly talk about the Trinity. Is as a as divine pool? Yeah, like there's a like, divine swimming hole or yeah, something. Yeah, like imagine like there's okay. this bucket of divine essence of which the three okay. persons are merely drawing from, like they're pulling out of this. Of which they represent thirty three percent or forty exactly. percent or fifty percent, right. whatever right. it might be. Mm -hmm. Or or if it's not Trinitarianism, it's attributes. Yes. Like this right. God is like this and this yep. God is like that. 
And what we're saying is, is if, if God has a need in himself, or if God has some sense of, of de- even desire, which I know that gets a little funky and we can explore that, then it means that God doesn't have everything in him. Right. But if God is one, then he has everything to be eternally joyful in himself. Mm-hmm. And this is not just something that we're trying to guard in the course of the show, like we just came up with it. It is what the Nicene Creed is trying to articulate in the midst of one of the earliest debates in the history of the church. So I'm going to read the Nicene Creed uh, just so that we have a good kind of foundation on uh, what the church has historically said in crucial moments about the doctrine of God. We won't, this is not going to be a podcast episode or season that's an exegesis of the of the Nicene Creed or Chalcedon or any of the creeds, but we will be using them because they do form a very healthy distillation. They're, they're distilling down. Uh, well, and they're that historic yes, guardrail. Um, view that we talked about in our previous episode. So let me read the Nicene Creed for us. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. So that is the Nicene Creed. So out of the gate in the Nicene Creed, you hear we believe in one God, uh, the, uh, the Father Almighty, going down to the next stanza, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, of the same essence as the Father. And then the third stanza, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the creed is emphatic about the oneness of God. We should be emphatic about the oneness of God. Why? Why is this crucial? We talked a little bit about it right there in distinguishing between monotheism and polytheism, both for the people of Israel at the unique moment in the history of redemption in which that distinction is being made with with a great degree of clarity, but also Mm -hmm. throughout the history of redemption and the testimony of scripture and the history of the church, the oneness of God has been viewed as crucial. Why? I mean, I think we've explored most of this, but maybe just to summarize quickly, let me give three reasons why it's crucial. This is not an exhaustive list, but I think it's just a, a quick and easy list. Why is it important to believe in one God? Number one, this is how the Bible reveals God. 
And if we, if we were wanting our doctrine, not if we, because we want our doctrine to match up with God's revelation, we believe God is one. God does not reveal himself as a multiplicity of gods, nor is there, are there any other gods worshipped uh, properly. There are other gods worshipped as, as idols, but there is no worship that is not directed at the one God of Israel that is acceptable in biblical revelation. So we worship one God. The second is theological. This is what we were just talking about as it relates to divine simplicity. If there are more than one gods, in a sense, and I want to make sure this hits with people, there aren't any gods. Like if there is something outside of God worthy of worship, then there are no, there are no gods. They're all finite beings, not infinite beings. And that's one of the things that the doctrine of simplicity helps us with. But really just in terms of like maybe the most practical on the grounds way that we could think about this is that the beauty of there being only one God, it means that our desires and affections can uh, appropriately only go in one direction or towards one being. There's only one reference point for what we love, not multiple reference points. And I think about how challenging that would have been in a, in a pluralistic society of, uh, or a polytheistic society where you're worshiping multiple gods is you have to be thinking to yourself, have I worshiped that God enough? Have I given enough of my devotion and affection and desires to that God? Oh, I forgot about this God over here. I've not done that since Thursday. And life would be so scattered because your desires and affections are scattered. But the Bible gives us this great news that our affections and desires are directed towards one reference point, namely God and God alone, the one God. So what separates us from the Unitarians? Trinitarianism. And then and that's what we get to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, basically, if I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, well, then what, why are we hard on the Unitarians? Aren't they just trying to hold us to this truth? Don't they just want us to be monotheistic? You know, and totally. I think, you know, everybody's seen the Unitarian church on the, on the street corner and wondered, what's the difference between them and us? And I know we'll get into it more as we talk about Trinitarianism in future episodes, but like, What's your quick hit right now on, on the difference between being Unitarian and being monotheistic? Yeah, one of the things that we need to, and we'll, we'll explore this theme, I think, over the next three or four episodes, and we've mentioned this on the podcast before, is that heresy seeks to relieve the tension that the Bible Main, like uh, uh, makes Bible us maintain, holds, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, holds, and so like there is a there is a tension that the Bible is giving us between the one God and the three persons, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. To overemphasize unity is to become a Unitarian. To overemphasize diversity is to become a polytheist. Mm-hmm. But as Kyle mentioned earlier, Unitarian or uh, 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 to believe in the oneness of God and the threeness of God is monotheistic Trinitarianism, and I think I would even go as far as saying Christocentric monotheistic Trinitarianism, which is a whole whole another thing that we'll talk about when we get to the, the episode on the doctrine of the Son, what it means what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it really is we we maintain this unity because the Bible does. We maintain it because theologically, if we don't, we have to have multiple gods that are no gods to be worshipped. But then even just in our own practical lives, I didn't have to wake up this morning and say, How many gods do I have to worship today? And how many sacrifices do I have to offer? And how do I make sure I devote myself to these five gods? But rather, my God my God demands all of me and mm-hmm. I am free to give all of myself to him. That's really good. Can you hear him, Jen? No, I was muted. muted. I muted. I muted myself. 
Wow. Kyle, you are a professional. I Can know. we keep this in, Producer and Brad? I'm, I'm no, in, you're I'm, so mean, JT. I'm embarrassed because I was going to ding the, the Unitarians, and I'm going to go ahead and keep doing it. But He was like slam dunking uh, the Unitarians well, on you. I mean, it's just, Boom! The, Take that. The, the, you think the, that was the Lord, maybe? The, 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 the coincidental thing about the Unitarians, I would say consequential given their philosophic engine, but most Unitarians actually end up being polytheists because they're uni- they're universalists. So exactly. Unitarianism means about as much as the paper it's printed on at this point. It one time had a philosophic engine. They surrendered their birthright for a mess of cultural porridge, and now they're functional universal universalists and subsequently polytheists. So um, that's what happens when you surrender the Bible for your own taste and preferences. But Suffice it to say, Trinitarian monotheists have not done that and uh, are trying— I'm glad you weren't on mute for that. That was really good. That was uh, uh, super spicy, Kyle. Are trying to defend it. Well, I mean, there's not much that I am just willing to come out and say is just adamant (laughs) heresy and Unitarianism (laughs) is. If you know somebody that's in a Unitarian church, it's not a Christian church. Whether it says Christ on the sign or has a cross on the building, you should really implore them to leave that false religion because that's what it is. The lack of clear clear teaching on the Trinity in in Orthodox churches may be the reason your friend is there. Abso- so be loving, absolutely. absolutely. And the, the the problem is is that the lack of clear teaching, as we'll find out in the course of the season, isn't just on one side of this. You've got people out there that are quote unquote Trinitarians that are functionally polytheist because they surrender some first principles on the mm-hmm. doctrine of Trinity, specifically the oneness of God. So one mm-hmm. of the things that's mentioned in the Creed is this phrase specifically concerning the Son, although true of Father, Son, and Holy. Spirit spirit, which is that the son is of the same essence as the father. Now that word essence could be translated substance. It's the Greek word usia. And a lot of ink is spilled over this idea. I mean, in in many ways, the Nicene Creed is a response to heresy concerning the deity of the son of God and who the son of God, Jesus Christ, actually is. So the creed in saying same essence is really they're trying to underline that phrase in like bold like bold underline italics permanent marker this idea of same essence is crucial because when we're thinking about the oneness of God we are saying that the father the son and the holy spirit the three distinct persons of the godhead are co-essential or they're consubstantial they're of the same essence. The father doesn't have like divine essence A, the son has divine essence B, the spirit has divine essence C. The divine essence of the son and the spirit are not derivative, nor are they secondary or tertiary. They're not like diet divine. It's the same essence. So this is a crucial part of thinking through the oneness of God is the oneness of God is not merely his singularity as the one God who is, rules, and reigns, nor is it merely to say that he is the supreme God of which the story of scripture is testifying. It is to say that the one God is one in all three persons of the Godhead, and that oneness is not jeopardized, confused, or called into question by their relations to one another. Now, we'll spend more time on this in the next three episodes as we look at each distinct person of the Godhead. We will talk about divine relations.
their relationships within the Godhead. So the relationship between the Son and the Father, the relationship between the Spirit and the Father and the Son, these relations do not jeopardize the oneness of all three persons or the co-essential, consubstantial nature of the Trinitarian fellowship. So they don't jeopardize it. What do they do? They The relations, and again, we'll get into this in the next three episodes, the relations are there to clarify mm. the distinctiveness between the persons. It is a distinctiveness of relation, not a distinctiveness of nature. Good. It's not to suggest that they are three different gods, nor to say that they are three gods that possess different quantities or degrees of divinity or of the divine essence. It's the 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 relations or, or what you see in the creed as begotten, not made. That word begotten is a word of relation. What is the relationship between the son and the father? The son is eternally begotten, not made. The father mm-hmm. is eternally unbegotten. It is trying to be in accordance with the witness of scripture as it relates to the relationships between the father, the son, and the spirit to clarify those relations without jeopardizing the full co-essential, consubstantial, co-gloried worth, dignity, and nature of each person. Yes, JT, have I I stepped on a landmine there? <laughs> yeah, but I'm just going to let the Twitter mob come get you. Please don't. <laughs> no, it was it was great. I agree completely with that. It's good. So, JT, real quickly, how does oneness relate to divine simplicity? Simplicity can be a challenging topic to cover in a year-long doctoral seminar, so even more challenging <laughs> to talk about in two minutes on a podcast. But let's see if we can do it sim- uh, simply. Uh, when we talk about divine simplicity, we're, we are certainly relating this to Trinitarianism in terms of there being one God and three persons, but it also relates to attributes, and that's where we're going to go in this season. And it's to say that God doesn't have attributes. God is attributes. And maybe another way to say it is that God is not made up of parts. Mm-hmm. He is not a composite of justice and love and holiness and any, any attribute we could think of. Rather, he is simple. And every attribute he has is God. So all of the attributes that are him are him. And so when you think about like, okay, well, God, I, I really am praying for God's justice. To pray for God's justice is also to pray for God's love. To pray for God's love is also to pray for God's holiness. To worship God's unity is also to worship his diversity. And so when we think about simplicity, we're, we're saying there's not like this, I think of like, a, oh, what's that game? Like Jeopardy? You know, you like spin the wheel, that's not Jeopardy, uh, Wheel of Fortune. Uh, you know, wheel of like some some people would think of wheel of fortune of like putting attributes of God on this wheel, spinning it, and seeing which attribute are you going to land on. If you land on one attribute of God, you get all the attributes of God. Yeah. And so you, there's not like this uh, uh, two sides to God or or yin and a yang to God. It is, and sometimes we can think about this when it comes to forgiveness and justice. Those are the same thing mm-hmm. in God. Mm-hmm. He isn't just being forgiving or being just. He is being God in both. Mm-hmm. Does that help? It does. Let me tell the listener here. Um, let me just kind of pull back the veil. Uh, in the last seven or 10 years, there have been a few doctrines that I've wrestled with substantially. 
And one of those doctrines is the doctrine of divine simplicity. I've actually, on this podcast, talked about divine simplicity in ways that, that, that looking back on now, I would probably pull my punches a little bit more because I've asked the question of to what degree is divine simplicity necessary? for a healthy and orthodox doctrine of God. Um, JT is literally dancing <laughs> in the video. Dancing. In the last two years, I've been doing a deep dive on the doctrine of God for my own purposes and edification. I didn't know that we'd be doing this season. And what at one point I thought was um, helpful, but maybe not necessary, I now view as helpful and crucial, uh, absolutely yep. necessary for a, a, a right understanding of the doctrine of God. I think that as I came to the doctrine of divine simplicity, I really struggled with how scripture bore witness to the doctrine. And divine simplicity, as JT mentioned, is one of the more technical aspects of thinking through the doctrine of God. It certainly is one that oftentimes is deployed with a a very strong philosophical engine to it. Um, and that's of benefit to the doctrine of the church uh, and the doctrine of God specifically. But when we think through who God is in light of scripture, I was looking for like a very Zechariah 2, 7, God is simple uh, and in him there is no complexity mm. at all. Uh, and I think I was applying probably too wooden of a perspective on finding the doctrine of divine simplicity in scripture. And subsequently, uh, I, I, I experienced a lot of confusion around some matters that we'll talk about on this podcast. And so just know, if you feel like, man, this is, th this is either new to me uh, or helpful uh, or I still have some questions, um, that's very – that, that's okay. It, it's some heavy lifting. Yes. Um, and yet I do think that the long tail on studying it demonstrates that it's not just helpful for a coherent doctrine of God. It is faithful to the witness of scripture as well. Uh, and I just say that to say, I think sometimes when you're hearing our podcast, you might be like, well, they've just kind of like years ago, they settled on all these answers and now they're just riffing no. off of these wells they dug years ago on mm -hmm. the stuff that they're working through now. It's like, no, through this mm -hmm. podcast, through theology and community, through having to think through hard questions, I had to go back to scripture, had to go back to the history of the church, look at it and go, is divine simplicity helpful and crucial? Is it harmful and crucial? Is it just crucial and not helpful? And I had to really think through it. And I changed my mind on the kind of direction I was headed in, really because other Christian thinkers asked me questions and I had to really think through what scripture I had to say. So anyways, if you find yourself startled by this, that's okay. I, I did as well. Yeah. And it took me a while to kind of sort through it. Well, and I think one of the things that I've noticed that's out there, like I, I was not familiar with the divine simplicity aspect of the attributes of God until much later in my contemplation of the attributes of God. But what we often have functionally is an oversimplification of the attributes of God or an overly simplistic view of them, which I think is ironic to me that the more you understand the simplicity of God, the more you actually expand uh, your view of who God is. An oversimplification of God would be that thing where you've boiled him down to one of his attributes or to two or three of them. Um, and that's what characterizes your thinking about him. So simplicity of the simplicity of God does not mean that there are only one or two things you need to understand about him. It's, it's, it's addressing a different idea. Um, but it's ironic to me that so often we operate from a place of like, Oh, God is love. 
like that's not divine simplicity. That's an oversimplification uh, of of the attributes of God. Um, all right, let's let's end here. What are some pitfalls we need to steer clear of when we think about the oneness of God? Um, we've already mentioned some of these. If you overly emphasize the unity of the Godhead, so to speak, you could end up in a kind of Unitarianism. Probably not what's happening in most Unitarian churches, but some of the proto-Unitarian philosophy. But what are some of the other pitfalls that we might need to avoid when thinking through the doctrine of God, specifically the oneness of God? JT? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we've honestly hit on, hit on most of them, but the other two that I would maybe just mention quickly, and you mentioned them earlier, but we didn't really explore them, is specifically when we're talking about the unity of God, we want to make sure that we avoid what we would consider any subordinationism in God, specifically in terms of God's willingness. This can be a really complex thing. I think we'll hit on this more when we talk about the doctrine of the Son, but whenever we teach on this, uh, the first question is, well, well, what about Jesus? He says, not my will be done, but your will be done. And again, that gets into pretty complex Christological issues because God has one will, the Son of God who takes upon human flesh and his two natures has two wills. Uh, And we'll just leave that as kind of a hanging chad until we get to that episode. But if you think that God has two or three wills towards you, that the Father has one will or the Son has another will or perhaps the Spirit has another will, that could be a really distressing thing because God the Father might feel differently towards you or think differently or have a different will for you than the Son does. And that is outside of the Christian tradition. God has one will and his one willingness is eternal. Uh, It is for his people, it's for his world, and it comes specifically from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who share eternally in the one willingness of uh, the one will of who God is. And so there, there's been some um, some strange, uh, I would just say, a- aberration might be too strong of a word, but I would say certainly significant misunderstandings among some Trinitarian scholars over the last several decades that have kind of taught what we might call a social Trinitarianism or a subordinationism, which does say that there is a will in the Father and a different will in the Son. And, and we want to make sure that we, uh, we avoid that. We say God has one will because God himself is one. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's exactly right. And we'll find out more pitfalls to avoid as we go through the season. Certainly there are many as we consider who God is. And so on our next episode, we're going to be looking at who is God. God is Father. We'll also open up that episode talking and distinguishing between the imminent Trinity and the economic Trinity, which is a helpful distinction to have as we go into thinking through the three persons of the Godhead. Uh, Listen, if you want to find more on Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Uh, Drop a question in there. We'll look through those questions as we do our seasonal Q&A episode at the end of every season. Don't miss our sister podcast. You can find Family Discipleship Podcast with Adam Griffin, Chelsea Griffin, and Cassie Bryant. They have some incredible guests on this season and it has been a fantastic show these last couple of seasons. So check that out. Or you can look at our brand new show, Confronting Christianity with Rebecca McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Mm. Nailed it that time. Oh, Worley. Nailed it. So we hope you enjoy the discussion today. Grace and peace.